This episode is brought to you by Vimeo, home to the world's best filmmakers. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Booter. And I'm John Fusco. It's February 2nd, 2017, and on this week's show, the most popular cameras from Sundance Films, the highly charged SAG Awards, politics as unusual, and in Ask No Film School, what the heck is a 4K crop? And as always, we bring you news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, and new film releases. Welcome to this week's show. We are back in downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. It's Groundhog's Day, and we have a story going up about why the 1993 film of that same name might be the perfect comedy. It's Groundhog's Day, and we have a story going up about why the 1993... Uh-huh, see what I did there? I do, but I think it's... Is it Groundhog's Day, or is it Groundhog Day? Oops. Groundhog. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So if you listen to the last couple shows, you know that we were all on the ground at the 33rd annual Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, and we've now got almost 40 posts from the fest up on nofilmschool.com, including three podcasts, interviews with many directors of this year's award-winning films, and panel discussions about things like best practices for shooting in 4K. So check them out. A little bit more Sundance news has emerged since the last show, and we will start with our now famous segment, The Bottom Line, with did, Emily Booter. Did you see that someone shouted out your segment on Twitter? No. <laughs> yeah. What did someone say? They, well, they tweeted it, I think they tweeted it at Oakley, and they were like, they're like, we love The Bottom Line. <laughs> 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 Which is like more response than I think any of us have ever gotten on the podcast. So <laughs> that's so amazing. <laughs> Keep <Well>. it up. <laughs> Welcome back to the bottom line coming at you from Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> um, so there's a new kid on the block this week. Actually, it's more like two old kids who decided to make a neon baby. Okay, let me explain myself. Tim League of Alamo Draft House and Tom Quinn, who used to head up distribution at Radius, have founded Neon, a new distribution company which aims to tailor release strategies to the needs of each specific film they, were, they acquire ranging from traditional wide theatrical launches to new media models. Quinn and League have always been on the vanguard of distribution, and this is just another example of necessary malleability in our ever-changing industry model. I do wish they named the company Neon Baby. So if Neon is the new kid on the block, then Netflix is the prom queen. As of Monday, the company acquired its 10th film out of Sundance, the most buys of any company at the festival this year. Netflix bought D. Reese's Mudbound for $12.5 million, marking the biggest deal out of Sundance this year. Reese previously directed the poignant film Pariah. It was a really small indie film about a lesbian inner-city teenager struggling to come to terms with her identity. Mudbound sees Reese venture into the big leagues with the story of two families pitted against a social hierarchy of post-World War II South. Going into the festival, it was one of the hottest acquisition titles, and it received, during screenings, multiple standing ovations. And this buy is important for Netflix because it signals a sea change in Netflix's strategy. It's a major Oscar contender, and Netflix wants you to know that it's now in the game. The company will release it with a day-and-date model, which means it will be available to stream, and it will come to theaters on exactly the same day, presumably next fall, just in time for award season. And that was the bottom line. Well done, Emily. (laughs) 
The Sundance Awards were announced as well. The Grand Jury Awards were handed to the following. U.S. Documentary went to Dina by Dan Sickles and Antonio Santini about a romance between a mentally challenged couple. The U.S. Dramatic went to Macon Blair's I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, a comedy crime thriller starring Elijah Wood. And that was already... Uh, a Netflix movie. Yeah, already a Netflix movie. And it's uh, Macon Blair is awesome. That was one of the ones I really wished I could have gotten a chance to see before I even went to Sundance because he's the dude that's in Blue Ruin and Green Room. Um, he's sort of like Jeremy Solnieri's buddy. What and a she- tangled indie web we weave. To further tangle the web, she also wrote um, a feature film that is premiering as of yesterday. It was announced it's premiering at South by Southwest this year. Wait, who? Megan Blair. Megan Blair? Yeah. Awesome. Cool. She's on fire. It's it's a guy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Damn it. I was hoping it was a woman. He's on fire. I wish his name was Bacon Mare. <laughs> anyway. It's like horse bacon. What? <laughs> So How weird. is it like horse bacon at all? Mayor. Bacon mayor. Bacon. Oh, I was thinking like the mayor of bacon. Oh, that's mayor, not mayor. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that made more sense to the me. The next film, directed by the mayor of bacon. Um, okay, after that tangent, the World Documentary Grand Jury Award went to Last Men in Aleppo by Ferris Fayad out of Denmark and Syria about the White Helmet volunteers trying to aid Syrian war victims. You saw that one, right, Emily? Yes, it was amazing. Apparently the jury agreed. And the World Dramatic went to the Niall Hilton incident, written and directed by Tariq Saleh out of Sweden, Germany, and Denmark, which follows a murder investigation set against the backdrop of the Egyptian Revolution. Ooh, I see a theme emerging. There were lots of other awards, of course, and so many great films. I'll just quickly mention a few that we've posted or will post articles on. Audience Award for U.S. Doc went to Chasing Coral by Jeff Orlowski. We put up a great post about that today fascinating cinematography story about how they had to shoot time lapses underwater with GoPros and iPads. The Audience Award for the next section went to Gook by Justin Chan. The Directing Award for U.S. Dramatic went to Eliza Hittman for Beach Rats. U.S. Doc Special Jury Award for Editing went to the editors Kim Roberts and Emiliano Batista for Unrest. U.S. Doc Special Jury Award went to Brian Fogel's Icarus. World Cinema Special Jury Award for Commanding Vision was awarded to Ramona Diaz for Motherland, and the World Cinema Documentary Special Jury Award for Masterful Storytelling went to Rumble, The Indians Who Rocked the World by Catherine Bainbridge and Alfonso Mayrana. Again, we have interviews with the directors or DPs of all of those films on nofilmschool.com. Speaking of awards, we are really in the thick of the season now, and one of the most significant events to happen in the past couple weeks was the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG Awards, which took place this past Sunday. SAG is an American workers' union that represents 160,000 performers from actors to broadcasters to stunt people, and its honors are the only televised awards show to exclusively honor performers. Hey, Liz. Did you know that I'm a SAG actor? We have a SAG among us. It's the best $200 I spend every year. Were you at the awards, John? No. Hmm. No, I haven't been in a SAG film ever. How'd <laughs> they let you to... into their club? It's, you don't, we don't want to get into it It's here. also for handsome stunt people. What was significant about this year's show was not the winners, so it's fine that you weren't there, John, which were really like all the usual suspects, 
but the decidedly political nature of many of the speeches on stage. Now remember, SAG is an American organization, and their ceremony took place a little over a week after Donald Trump was inaugurated as U.S. president, and a day after he hastily initiated a ban on immigrants and refugees from seven predominantly Muslim countries. Reactions from SAG Award winners took social media by storm as they recounted personal stories not typical of an awards show. For example, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who won Outstanding Performance by a Female Actor in a Comedy Series for Veep, recounted that she is the daughter of immigrants who fled religious persecution from Nazi-occupied France. Mehershala Ali, who was finally recognized for his incredible turn in Moonlight, pleaded with people to look past their differences, as he has with his own mother. She's an ordained minister, and he converted to Islam 17 years ago. The runaway hit speech came from David Harbour, who plays the police chief in the Netflix hit series Stranger Things. The cast won all together for outstanding performance by an ensemble, and his two-minute speech appealed directly to his fellow actors, like you, John, saying... This award from you, who take your craft seriously and earnestly believe, like me, that great acting can change the world, is a call to arms for our fellow craftsmen and women to go deeper and through our art to battle against fear. By revealing intimate truths that serve as a forceful reminder to folks that when they feel broken and afraid and tired, they are not alone. Neither was Winona Ryder when she when he made that speech. She wasn't alone. Apparently. She was visited. <laughs> she was visited. By tiny witches. <laughs> A lot of people believe that actors should stick to acting, but if one of the effects of the current political climate is that Hollywood becomes a little more caring and a little less vapid, I'm all for it. Do people believe that actors should stick to acting in the filmmaking world, too? Just like, if you're an actor, you shouldn't... Well, if that were true, some of the biggest films at Sundance this year wouldn't have been made. Yeah, like Macon Blair. Like the mayor of Bacon. The thing is, if you're in the U.S., as we are... It's pretty hard to ignore politics right now, so we're not going to either. But as always, we're looking at everything through the filmmaking lens. We reported on the day after Trump was elected about what his presidency might mean for filmmakers, and here we are, two weeks into his term, and each one of our predictions have already begun to prove accurate. Womp, womp, womp. The administration has already proposed to cut funding to the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities entirely, which are our only national sources for film funding. Further, Trump's chief of staff has publicly called the media the opposition party, and the White House has already refused to send its spokespeople or surrogates onto CNN because the longstanding news network, direct quote, won't promote our agenda. Even the Oscars are being affected. Iranian filmmaker Oscar Farhadi, who won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film in 2012 for A Separation. Amazing film, by the way. Amazing. Amazing is nominated again this year for what I imagine is an equally amazing film, The Salesman, but he can't attend the ceremony because of Trump's travel ban. Never mind that his film is about an Iranian production of the beloved American play, The Salesman. Also unable to attend, and this one's a real heartbreaker, the Syrian cinematographer and subjects of The White Helmets, who are also the subjects of the Sundance award-winning film we mentioned earlier, The Last Men in Aleppo, these are the volunteers who rescue Syrian war victims, and they can't come to the Oscars. By the way, these guys were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, so not likely terrorist material. These various developments hurt filmmakers and journalists no matter what your political leanings are. So what can we do? Well, in terms of the funding cuts, you can look for projects to support on crowdfunding sites or lend some of your time or equipment to the projects you care about. 
If you have a production company or agency, you could consider something like the Camera Collective is doing. Or if you're here in New York, you could take advantage of their offer. Camera Collective, that's with all Ks, is an impressive group of DPs founded by Wolfgang Held, Claudia Roschka, and Torsten Thilo, who have shot everything from Bruno to Before the Flood, tons of films, and they are lending out their top-notch DPs and gear in a limited capacity to projects that help support people negatively affected by this political moment. So cool. So cool. These guys are the coolest. If you're interested, you can email them at we at cameracollective.com. K- All Ks. Yeah. We'll put their email address in the podcast post this week. And now shifting towards maybe some shifting more exciting gears news. To gear news. Shifting gears to gear news. So while we were at Sundance, we didn't report on a few exciting developments. One of those was that Fujifilm has officially launched its G series of medium format cameras. The first in the lineup is the GFX 50S, a medium format digital camera with a big ol' sensor. The imaging benefits are huge since a larger sensor brings larger photo sites that create less noise at the same light level. In combination with the visual benefits of a smaller depth of field, you get the same field of view. That's great, but unfortunately it's currently limited to only 1080p resolution. But even with that spec in mind, it's $6,495 for the body only, which is more than $2,000 cheaper than its main rival, the Hasselblad X1D50C, which also offers 1080p video. The key that makes this camera more likely to show up in the field on film shoots, though, isn't just the lower body price, it's also the lower lens prices. So if you compare the Hasselblad, which is the camera I was just talking about, if you compare their 120mm macro lens at $5,700 to the Fujifilm GF 120mm macro lens at $2,700, that's a $3,000 price difference right there. And considering the furious pace that Fujifilm has been making body upgrades, it's likely there'll be a 4K capable body available in the next two years. And of course, the cheaper lenses that you buy will continue to work with that new platform. So it seems like a pretty nice development in the uh, medium format camera world. Thanks to Canon, who provided us with detailed data straight from 225 Sundance filmmakers, I was able to fashion a handy infographic displaying the most popular choices for cameras, lenses, and general gear brands used by directors at the festival this year. So by far, the most popular brand was Ari, followed by a wide margin with Canon and Sony. This is because the Ari Alexa was the most popular camera for Sundance filmmakers this year, period. The Amira was the second most popular choice, followed by Sony and Red. I'll also jump in to say that we also did our post about cameras used on the Oscar films, which Ari also dominated. Oh, interesting. I didn't see that. Only one filmmaker shot with a Bolex, one with an iPhone, and one with an Aton. As for the single most popular lens, the Cook S4 series won out but filmmakers chose a wide variety of Canon lenses too, making Canon the most popular brand lens overall, with Cook and Zeiss brands close behind. So I decided to analyze the data in terms of Sundance sections as well, which yielded some pretty interesting results. Sundance documentaries preferred shooting with the Canon C-Series camera or the Sony FS7, while Midnight and Dramatic went with Ari Alexa or Amira, and six Sundance premieres decided to shoot on film. Great. That's uh, good stuff to keep in mind when choosing your own gear for your projects that you want to get into Sundance next year. And our last piece of gear news comes from the audio world. A Actually, a pretty good friend of ours, Rode. Thank you, Rode, for all your mics and everything. Uh, they just announced their new VideoMic Pro Plus and 
even more interesting, a video mic sound field for 3D on-camera audio. I'll just do a quick rundown on the key features of their VideoMic Pro Plus and the VideoMic sound field, starting with the VideoMic Pro Plus. It's got a separate control for output levels, a two-stage high-pass filter at 75 hertz and 150 hertz, high-frequency shelf-to-control signal capture at the source, a new detachable 3.5 millimeter output cable, improved windshield, and improved battery capacity and power functions. So this whole 3D mic started back in November 2016, where Friedman Electronics, the parent company of Rode Microphones, purchased Soundfield. As a result of that acquisition, Rode is able to announce the first ever on-camera microphone designed to capture 3D audio, and that is the video mic sound field. This video mic sound field can collect 3D audio from a single microphone with four capsules, so it can create mono, stereo, 5.1, and width height surround sound just from that one single microphone. Users can also choose between the three different polar patterns, mono signal similar to VMP, picking up only the sound in front of the camera, narrow stereo array separating background noise from stereo ambience in front, and wide stereo array to capture ambience like music or nature sounds. It's pretty cool. For full specs, check out the article on nofilmschool.com. .com. You're putting videos out into the world, and chances are you need to collaborate to bring those videos to life. Fortunately, Vimeo has all new video review tools. Here's how they work. When you upload a rough cut to Vimeo, it gets its own private review page. You can share the page with as many people as you need, and you can leave time-coded notes anywhere on any frame of the video. Your feedback stays organized and secure. No more annoying email threads, no more confusing comments. Instead, everything you need to upload, review, and share videos all in one place. Vimeo, to learn about more features, visit join.vimeo.com slash review. This week on Ask No Film School, we have a question from Timothy Adzani Doe, a filmmaker from Ghana. He responded to our Sundance article about shooting in 4K with this question. Everyone talks about cropping 4K footage. Please, someone explain this crop, crop, crop thing to me. <laughs> I like your phrasing there, Timothy. Does that mean you shoot in 4K and edit in the HD timeline to be able to crop, or you can crop 4K footage on the 4K timeline? We called up our good friend Shane King to weigh in on the matter. Shane shot two films that are hitting the festival circuit this year. Tanya Libre will premiere at Berlinale, and The Untold Tales of Armistead Mopan will premiere at South by Southwest. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, so Timothy is correct in one of his guesses, which is that if you shoot in 4K and then you edit in a 2K timeline and your final delivery is uh, is 2K, then you can take that 4K footage and zoom in on it, um, you know, increase it by another 100%, so up to 200%, and that gives you a lot of flexibility in what section of the image you use. So everything about cropping has to do with post-production. It's not something that happens in camera. Exactly. And why is this useful to filmmakers? It's great. I mean, as, actually, as a DP, I kind of don't like it to shoot 4K when I know somebody's going to be editing in 2K because it gives the editor a lot of control over what part of the image you see uh, rather than the cinematographer having that control. But you know, it, in our production company, a lot of times I'm shooting and editing, so it's just um, like actually one thing that we use it for a lot is in interviews when we when we only have one camera that we're shooting with, 
it allows you to cut from a wide shot to a close-up um, within the same shot. You know, you don't have to have multiple cameras or get lucky and be in a wide shot during part of their answer and then a close-up in the other part of their answer and be able to cut those two things together. Thanks so much, Shane, and thanks, Timothy, for your question. And now moving on to some movies you can catch either streaming or in theaters this week. Nuts! With an exclamation point. It's not, that's not in the, the, with the exclamation point, it's not in the title. It's just nuts. And at the end of the title, nuts, there's an exclamation point. So it's, that's N-U-T-S exclamation point. Thank you for clarifying, John. It was a standout from last year's Sundance, Penny Lane's animated documentary about Dr. John Romulus Brinkley, an eccentric genius who built an empire with his goat testicle impotence cure and a million-watt radio station. We have a great video interview with Penny and writer Tom Stalinsky that Oakley Anderson Moore conducted last year, and Oakley said that watching this documentary will totally change director's perspective on making doc films. And coming to Netflix this week is American crime story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, not to be confused with O.J. Made in America. the ESPN docs. Right. This is the first season of a dramatic series focused on some of history's most famous criminals. It was created by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. At the Golden Globes this year, it won Best Miniseries and Best Actress on a Miniseries for Sarah Paulson, who played the lawyer Marsha Clark, Cuba Gooding Jr. stars as O.J. Simpson, along with John Travolta as Robert Shapiro, and David Schwimmer, who, in my heart, is always and forever Ross Geller, as Robert Kardashian, a.k.a. Ross Geller. Cuba Gooding Jr. is always in my heart as radio. You know, does that not ring true with anyone? Great movie. Radio? Cool. <laughs> radio silence. Ooh. None of you. None of you have seen radio. Nope. Have you, do you know what this movie is about? Nope. It's like radio. He's like a mentally challenged uh, janitor who starts playing for a high school football team. It's really. Aww. <laughs> uh, Cuba. Yeah. Sarah Paulson also won a SAG award for the same role, which is the award show we talked about at the top of the show. Coming to HBO on February 6th is Solitary by documentary filmmaker Christy Jacobson. The unflinching documentary gives us a peek at what life is like inside a maximum security prison where inmates are alone in 8 by 10 cells for 23 hours a day. Her subject, Red Onion State Prison, is in southwest Virginia. It's isolated by mountains in all directions, and it's usually entirely closed off to the media. So I'm looking forward to interviewing Jacobson actually this afternoon about how she got access to the prison and what it was like being a female filmmaker interacting with the male prison population who don't see many outsiders. Should be fascinating. And coming out in theaters tomorrow is I Am Not Your Negro, one of the most powerful and timely docs of this past year. The Oscar-nominated film by Raoul Peck imagines how writer James Baldwin's magnum opus would have been realized if he had not died only 30 pages into writing it. The book was about the lives and the murders of three of Baldwin's closest friends, the civil rights leaders Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr., I interviewed the film's editor, Alexandra Strauss, which was especially interesting because the entire film is made of archival footage with a voiceover by Samuel L. Jackson. So her role as editor was very significant to how the project turned out. And that will be up on NoFilmSchool.com also tomorrow. Did you see that movie? Oh, yeah. So can you explain to me why it has a 4.5 rating on IMDb? Is that like a... 
is that like a scam? Because I've only heard good things about it, but I feel like people are like infiltrating and like trying to like bring it down for some reason. Oh, that's interesting. So it 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 has been awarded by audiences only four point five stars out of yeah, ten on yeah, IMDb. Yeah, you should do an investigative article. It's a on really that. interesting question. I'm not shocked because it is a very divisive film, even though it's about this writer who did most of his work in the 60s and 70s and died in the 80s. It brings up so many issues that are kind of hot button today. Again, it's really about civil rights and sort of where do we stand as a country and what our values are. So it's not an easy movie and audiences might have kind of personal reactions to it, but it's been so highly critically acclaimed and like been nominated for every award and uh I certainly think it's worth a view. So on to grant deadlines. The Bureau of Creative Works short film grant has a deadline of February 6th, and it's returning for its second year. It commissions 12 creative short films of any genre that can be made on a small budget between $1,000 and $3,000. And actually, Oakley Anderson Moore like was a recipient of this grant, and we were talking about it last week. And it's cool in the sense that it's not really meant to sort of be like a finishing fund. It's like, here's $3,000, now like make... This Something. Movie. Yeah, make anything. Um, so that's cool. Uh, Sundance Feature Film Creative Producing Fellowship and Lab has their deadline on February 7th. We just got back from Sundance, if you guys didn't know. The Sundance Institute will choose five emerging producers with projects in pre-production to attend the Feature Film Creative Producing Lab, the Creative Producing Summit, and the Sundance Film Festival, as well as receive $10,000 in stipends and a year-long mentorship. I actually ran into a couple of friends who were last year's recipients at this year's Sundance because part of the package is you get to go to Sundance to Mm -hmm. promote your film and take meetings. And the program is designed to hone emerging producers' creative instincts and evolve their communicating and problem-solving skills at all stages of realizing a project. Is anyone Danish here? I love Danish things. Everything Danish. I like eating Danishes. Didn't you meet a Danish? I did. A Danish editor. Editor, yeah. He was, uh, he was in one he, of the interviews that were... Yeah, he edited Force Majeure and like 5,000 other amazing movies. Yeah, uh, wasn't he on... Uh, not, it wasn't Lars von Trier, but... Um, yeah, he, he edits Trier? all of Lars von Trier's movies. That's cool. Yeah, um, so cool. look out for that podcast. But in Film the meantime, you can apply to the West Danish Film Fund. Uh, it has a deadline on February 8th. You might consider this fund if your film has a Danish co-producer, for example... They support films, documentaries, television series, and multimedia productions, including international co-productions. Support is given to artistically interesting productions, which further the strengthening of the film industry in the Danish region. Financial support is provided in the form of subsidies and or investments. And there are a bunch of festival deadlines coming up. Tomorrow is the deadline for AFI Ducks Film Festival. It's the American Film Institute's documentary film festival known for showcasing the best in doc films from the U.S. and around the world. It takes place in Washington, D.C. from June 14th to the 18th this year. And the San Francisco Documentary Film Festival has an early bird deadline of Friday, February 3rd. It takes place, obviously, in San Francisco from June 1st to 15th. At the Roxy Theater, Oh, no one of my favorites. Very, very cool. The festival was attended by over 8,000 doc lovers last year, and it's 17 years in the running. While we're on the Dock Tip, one of my favorite, most fun festivals I've ever been to, Sheffield Dock Fest, has a deadline on Tuesday, February 7th. My mom's birthday. Happy birthday, Mom. I love you. 
Anyway, Sheffield is the UK's premier documentary film festival. It takes place in Northern England from June 9th to the 14th, and it's huge. It has over 30,000 festival goers and lots of industry delegates. It has a very elaborate pitch fest. So if you are trying to sell your documentary, it's also a great one to go to. And... Make it Get blitters. ready for it. <laughs> the Macon Bacon Horse Bacon Film Festival in Macon, Georgia. If you've oh, made a man. film about Wait. bacon. <laughs> <laughs> That's a terrible accent you did. <laughs> you, well, I know. I don't know. Just our pardons to our listeners from Georgia. We know you all don't sound like that, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the festival is actually called the Macon Film Festival, not the Bacon Film Festival. It's very true. Um, the deadline is Thursday, February 9th, and it goes from July 20th to 23rd. Only three days. Wow. Interesting. This one's one of the top 100 best-reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway, and there are cash prizes, not in the form of bacon. I want to see the Bacon Film Festival, though. That would be something <laughs> You know that... who doesn't want to see the Bacon Film Festival? Piggies. Okay, but I think that no film school should start a Bacon Film Festival. I'm going to put out a challenge right now to our listeners. This is something that I'm going to take head on, Liz. Um, if you want to make a video about bacon, we will feature it on the site in some way. If it's good, because we're probably going to get a lot of submissions for this. So. And do not submit a sizzle reel. Oh, <laughs> that, that's good. <laughs> good job, everybody. Now, a film festival that is actually happening right now, I want to make sure to give a shout out to. The San Francisco Indie Fest is running today through February 19th. It's a wonderful, very indie-minded fest programmed by filmmakers like my pals Joshua Moore and Chris Metzler. And this year, they have a special program that I want to bring to your attention. On February 9th, they'll be running a tribute to Bay Area filmmaker Lisa Swenson and screening her film Saltwater and Mission Movie. Lisa died last year. She was one of my local filmmaking heroes when I started my career in the Bay Area. In addition to making and teaching film, she founded both Artists Television Access and Tilt, a youth media organization that I eventually ran before I moved to New York. She is so missed, especially now, when being community-minded in our work is more important than ever. So if you're in the Bay Area over the next couple weeks, check it out. So if you haven't noticed, um, we have been running Sundance podcasts every Monday uh, instead of our traditional bi-weekly interview podcast. It's now every week um, because we've got so much great content. And that being said, this Monday, you'll be able to hear another one. So be sure and tune in for that. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about on today's show and lots more about the craft of filmmaking on nofilmschool.com. And make sure that you subscribe to this lovely podcast to get your Indie Film Weekly every week and those exciting interviews coming up. And while you're at it, please go ahead and rate us with five huge stars on iTunes. Or 4.5. Yeah, that works too. I'll take 4.5 plus bacon. Yeah, remember to send in your bacon videos. Meanwhile, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At E.L. Booter on Twitter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, 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 how did that start? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. It's here and it's here to stay. Uh, right. <sighs> Happy birthday, Mom, and see you all next week. <laughs>